Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound. Welcome to a public affair. I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host. This morning, the world's leading climate scientist delivered a quote final warning about the rapidly vanishing possibility of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Beyond this level of warming. Human damage to the climate will quickly become irreversible, scientists say. This warning was part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment synthesis report. The report states that in many regions, people are already reaching the limits of their ability to adapt to the severe changes induced by global heating. My guest today argues that the U.S. education system is not preparing young people to survive and adapt to this climate change world. In her recent article for The Progressive, Young People Need Solutions-Oriented Climate Education, Sage Lanier lays out her vision for public schools that would, quote, revive the deep ties that we have to the places that raise us and inspire people to be active participants in their ecosystems. Sage Lanier is the founder of Sustainable and Just Future, a youth-led educational nonprofit. As a 19-year-old student at the University of California, Berkeley, she started the university's largest student-led course ever called Solutions for a Sustainable and Just Future, which has served over 1,800 students. Currently, Sage is a Public Voices Fellow with the Op-Ed Project in partnership with the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Welcome to A Public Affair, Sage. We're so glad to have you with us. Hi, thank you for having me. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for Sage Lanier or want to share a perspective on climate education, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. Sage, I'd love to start our conversation today by having you tell us the story you begin your recent progressive article with about your high school environmental science class and how it galvanized you to think about climate education differently. Yeah, so I came to environmentalism from a social justice background. I was a very passionate teenager. And I got involved really through, I was reading some books over the summer of my senior year, realized, you know, this is kind of a movement that has the ability to encapsulate all of these movements and, you know, no human rights on a dead planet. And then I just signed up for my school's AP Environmental Science uh, class the next year. And I think what is unique about that is because, is that these standardized educations is so many people's introduction to the conversation of environmentalism. And it really is a fork in the road of whether or not they're going to get involved or find a passion for this. And it was awful. <laughs> I have so much love for my AP environmental science teacher, and I think he was doing the best he could with what he had. But as a, I've been talking with this a lot about this a lot with other folks over the past weeks, months, I think there's a consensus that they're still using a doomsday, scary when to care model when without realizing that this generation cares and is actually like too too frightened and is not going to get be encouraged to get involved by that so um yeah we were talking about like topsoil collapse and i just remember very unceremoniously like my teacher had been like yeah there's like not much we can do about that so the test is tomorrow and i i was just like freaking out because it wasn't a conversation, you know, topsoil collapse wasn't a conversation that I'd ever had with my family, with my friends, with my community. And it seemed immediately relevant. And so I was like, well, okay, here's like, here's our first problem is that no one knows about any of these things. And then when I went on to Berkeley the next year, I realized that like doomsday was going to be the theme of my environmental education. <laughs> and I was just not thrilled with that. I 
could see it in like my peers. I mean, in high school, my best friend had dropped after that first uh, semester of that uh, class because she was like, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting stuff, but it's so depressing. Like, what am I supposed to do about any of that? So that's a huge testament. So like we kind of, you know, were the fork in the road. And then I went on to college and I saw a lot of people dealing with that saying like, you know, I do really care and this is important to me, but I'm kind of thinking of switching in my major because this is just a lot for my mental health. And I just wasn't getting the kind of education I wanted to get. And I didn't feel like, <sighs> apologies, it's early for me. <laughs> I didn't feel you're, like- You're on the West Coast, right? I'm actually in Honolulu. Oh, okay. Yes, it's very early. <laughs> yeah, that's what I am. Um, I just did not feel like, you know, 14 weeks of talking about the problem and then kind of glossing over the solution in the last two weeks was cutting it the way that a majority of my classes were formatted. And um, it was it was also weird on like an emotional level, like trudging through those 14 weeks and then having that glimmer of hope and kind of just being like, wait, 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 no, 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 that sounds cool. Hang on, like run that back. Like, can you, can you get more? And then it was just over and we were like, oh, okay. And just the emotional total of it all wasn't, you know, wasn't working. And so uh, my sophomore year, I started teaching my own class. Originally, I was kind of more so teaching about, honestly, zero waste. That's kind of was my start with environmentalism. I think it's a lot of people's zero waste. And then I also had some stuff about food systems in there and a little bit on the climate. But it kind of evolved um, with me as I grew my knowledge of solutions. I ended up not really taking a real major. I ended up just kind of doing an interdisciplinary major and taking whatever classes I wanted to, yeah, um, it was it was pretty funny how that worked out. Can you tell us a little bit more, Sage? Um, it, it's such a great kind of take the reins approach. I'm not getting the kind of supportive solution oriented education I want here. I'm going to make my own course, but fill in the, the gaps for us. How does that work uh, at, at, you were at UC Berkeley? Uh, okay. to, to create your own course. And then, you know, before long, you had hundreds of students enrolling in this course. Uh, mm -hmm. Give us a little bit of a sense of, of how that works. So it's it a pretty novel program that we used for this. And so as, you know, we've just started the nonprofit, we're definitely have to be flexible because the, you know, it's not like every university offers pro a program like this to their students. But so what happened was the Berkeley has a decal program, Democratic Education at Cal. It was, I believe it was fought for by the same students who fought for the establishment of the first Afro studies department in the United States. And they were just basically saying like, education shouldn't just belong to like the old white dudes. Um, we should be able to teach each other. So the Democratic Education program at Cal is really robust. There's loads and loads of decals, dozens of them. And typically they're like more intimate. They're like maybe two or three people facilitating and maybe like 25 students teaching or participating in the course. And they can really be about anything. But I, you know, decided to make mine about environmental solutions. So it grew as I did um, using this decal program. No one had ever actually done a huge decal program the way that I did before. What but it also was not technically against the rules. Administration didn't like what I was asking them for, but I just always had a maxed out wait list because it was it ended up being the talk of campus. And so I would just go to them with my maxed out wait list and be like, here, I want, you know, I want 150 students next semester. And we would argue, <sighs> we would argue and then Eventually they gave in, I guess. And yeah, my fourth semester teaching at 160 students, that was, I believe, the first time we broke the record. My second, my fifth semester teaching, I had 300. That was my last semester teaching as I graduated and I handed it off to some more young women. Interestingly enough, everyone who's ever been involved with the program has been either um, woman or non-binary. We have very few men interested in the program, I guess. But yeah, so we, uh, it's on their fourth generation now of passing it down, I think, or they're training their fourth generation. And um, I was just there the other day and was teaching with them on Tuesday. It was great. I was in Berkeley visiting. And yeah, it's it, they've definitely scaled back since that 300-person semester because that was a bit much to handle. So now they, they range about 100 to 200 a semester. 
So the course is called uh, Solutions for a Sustainable and Just Future. Mm-hmm. And um, what what is the course's focus? What does the course offer that other courses didn't? Tell us a little bit more about the details. You, you mentioned you started with zero waste, but it's, it's grown. Uh, give us mm-hmm. a sense of the roadmap for the course now and how students are responding. So zero waste as a framework, I think. Zero waste is a framework for how the movement can really get things done. Um, let's think. So I start out with a kind of like consumerism is capitalism is climate change. There are studies that say that consu- that uh, consumption of household goods, 45 to 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions is associated with that. So I don't think people really realize the role that our consumption plays in climate change and environmental degradation. So we kind of make this whole argument, we set up this whole argument about how the consumer economy is the root of all of these crises. And so we're building a vision for what a better world can look like. So we try to keep things hopeful, actionable, solutions oriented, and very like scalable from the things you could do as an individual in your lifestyle, to your career, to the things you can advocate for in your community. And so consumerism is capitalism is climate change is what I like to call the first um, unit, I guess. But then we move on to uh, waste. And so we do just kind of still setting the scene. What is a landfill? What is recycling? What is compost? Why is that, How is that a climate solution? Very exciting stuff there. And then from there, we move into the circular economy and creative design. And so we're kind of, again, like setting the stage for what kind of better world can we imagine? And so that people get very excited by those lectures because we're talking about how like an inherent, like an economy that's based on non-tangible things like knowledges, services, um, experiences is going to be a lot more carbon, a lot less carbon and resource intensive than a goods economy. And so, you know, the other half of this whole conversation about fighting climate change, it's not just renewable energy, it's just the easier thing is reducing our energy and resource demand overall in the first place. Because scientists are telling us we can only meet 55% of our current and our expected energy demand with renewables while staying under 1.5 Celsius. They're telling us we have to use less energy. And so we give people a vision for what that could actually look like. So it's really exciting stuff there. Then we have a three-week segment on food systems. And then we talk about decarbonization, not climate change. We don't go super into the hows and the wets of climate change because I think people are a little, I've had enough. We talk about urban planning and also how that fits into a circular economy and how like an economy based on services, experiences and knowledge is also like a vastly different landscape and built environment. And we have a a segment on kind of like rewilding and what that looks like, you know, ecosystem restoration. And I, I think that's it as far as I can think right now. That sounds great, Sage. I'm going to go ahead and reintroduce you here for our listeners. I'm talking today with climate educator, activist, and writer Sage Lanier. My name is Douglas Haynes, and you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We'd love to have you join our conversation about climate education today and ecological education. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message A Public Affair on Facebook Sage, I want to pick up right where we left off there. Uh, you uh, beautifully described this course and this vision you have for it. And um, it's very coherent and, and coherent, especially in the sense of it's taking an issue and then attaching it to a solution. Um, when I steer college students in my own courses towards solutions oriented conversations, they typically tend to focus on individual changes in the ways they consume. And as you said, that that is very important. That's part of the puzzle, right? But um, my students struggle with the conversations about structural change and community power um, and seeing themselves as part of larger movements or structures that they can work with other people to change. Um, Tell us a little bit about 
your experiences talking with students about structural change and community power, both in this course and, and otherwise? I think it's really, really exciting to be able to like dig into this with folks who are uninitiated or even just like not feeling hopeful about the conversation or about their ability to make an impact because really what we try, first of all, I think a huge part of it is bringing your own energy and I'm sure you're familiar with this. Like you bring your own passion and you also bring your own outside work and your own experience and you say, here's the change that I'm making and you, and you really just show them, you know, a person on fire and that, that lights a fire in them as well. And then I think the, the really exciting part about it is just being able to show people how, you know, I think a lot of, I think system change is kind of becoming a default, like almost a refuting point lately where people say, um, no, 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 don't talk to me about individual action. We need system change without realizing that the system has never just changed. It's mass movements of regular people that push change into the legal system or the corporate sector, but the system doesn't change in and of itself. And the other part of it is that system change, especially in regards to the climate crisis, can only happen if we patchwork change on the community level. So whatever changes you make in your community, if I make them in mine and we all do it together, then we have a resilient and, you know, community modified climate plan. Because, you know, the problem is, is that we have been trying to operate on these national, international, continent, global levels. Mm -hmm. But especially in the, and when we're looking at climate resilience and adaptation and stuff, it, it has to go back down to the regional level where we're looking at, you know, regional food systems and regional urban planning, regional evacuation plans, whatever it is. So I think when you show people that the power is on the community level and how much change you can get done with your own city council or what have you, then people start to get excited because it feels like something that they can actually swallow. And is that your experience with college students as well? Uh, do you have some examples you can tell us about of seeing students get excited about um, community participation, community models, and how that's been incorporated into your course or others? Mm -hmm. So we do, we are like constantly trying to get them connected with resources and opportunities, organizations, so that they can get involved. And we have a really high success rate of of students saying that they did get involved after as a result of the program. Um, I'm trying to think of some of my favorite success rates. I, it, I think folks will just kind of tell me, you know, I decided to change my major into the environmental college, or I decided for a sustainable emphasis, whether it's, you know, circular business, like there's not a circular business degree, but a sustainability emphasis in the business school or um, I want to work in green labs because I'm getting a bioengineering degree. Or, you know, I started this initiative in my community. I started community gardens for the low-income, predominantly black uh, community that I'm from because there's no grocery stores. So those sort of things are just really beautiful to see the, the plants, the plants of my seeds, the fruits of my seeds, uh -huh. the fruits of my seeds. Yeah, uh, the seeds that you're planting coming to fruition in a sense, right? They're, they're um, students going out there and applying that both the energy that you've offered them and the concepts as well in these very specific, inspiring ways, it sounds like. Um, and you've done that in your own work as a college student beyond creating this course as well, um, illustrating community power. Tell us about some of the campaigns you've worked on uh, in uh, the UC system or UC Berkeley and I'm particularly interested on in what lessons you've drawn from them that might be applicable to other campuses and other university systems. So we have a very similar big university system here in Wisconsin. I missed the first part of that question. Sure. Um, you've been really involved in, uh, outside of your course, also in campaigns in uh, the UC system and in Berkeley. Uh, student campaigns related to like uh, UC uh, New yeah, Green yeah. Deal, for example, and divestment, other kinds of things like that. Tell us a little bit more about what lessons you've drawn from those kinds of campaigns outside of the classroom 
And I was saying, uh, here we have the UW system, which is very similar to the UC system. I'm curious, are there lessons that you could share with us about how community power and getting students together to make change has worked there? Oh, yeah. Um, Okay, so I think, yeah, it really reaffirms how much is possible on the community level. Obviously, Berkeley is thought of as a very progressive place. I don't think people really realize, though, that it's more, it's like any other place with a lot of corruption and bureaucracy in the system and just a very progressively minded population. So they're always trying to force things to get done. But yeah, so I was, um, while I was at Cal, I was the head of the ASUC Department of Zero Waste. And we were working to get better, like, waste sorting reduction education implemented. I was also a part of the leadership of Students for Climate Action. And we were leading a charge for a Green New Deal, but that got kind of put down because of COVID. And I know that the campaign is ongoing. I think it's been revived. I just, I'm not in communication with the organizers anymore because I don't personally know them. So I think there, I think there was, we were making great strides on that before we were interrupted. And I think it was a beautiful thing to see the solidarity. We were reaching out to other UCs and we were also working with the labor unions on our campus to put some real power behind the demands. So they were organizing for strikes for, it was, it was kind of like UC Green New Deal and then COLA, cost of living adjustment, COLA for all. Um, we're coming together to create one little force. And that was really beautiful to see. And um, also, yeah, I think that's actually, that, that's actually a good summary of what I was working on right then. Uh, my main projects at least. And um, yeah, I think the, the answer is community power. That's what I learned from them. I mean, it was wonderful that I didn't have to fight for a compost program because the students that came before me fought the university to have an amendment-sensible compost program. And that's how I, like, just studying the history of the environmental progress, environmental and social progress made on campus and how it was inevitably, it was always students who got things done and advocating, advocated for, you know, anti-racism in the classrooms. Um, there's an American culture requirement, which is kind of basically, yeah, like a, a history lesson on why America is a colonial construct. Um, so every student is required for that. And that was student advocated. So just learning that like it was people power fighting the system to get things done. That was like really transformative for me. And I feel like I just walk in their footsteps now. That was beautiful. Yeah. Those are great examples of student power and how students have often much more power than they think they do is my, my perspective on your, your perspective there, uh, kind of reinforces that. Um, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share about direct action or experiences with direct action? Uh, I think it's worth mentioning that tomorrow, as you know, there will be more than 100 demonstrations across 29 states in the U.S. targeting the four biggest American banks, which are also the four biggest lenders to the fossil fuel industry. Um, any thoughts about direct action and its effectiveness or your experiences with direct action that you'd like to share? Or that particular yeah. initiative tomorrow? Yeah, I think, okay, all I'll say is I do love direct action, and I want to encourage the kinds of people who show up to direct action to also show up for community care. <laughs> I think those who show up for demonstrations and protests and uh, that sort of thing, um, they have a lot of fire and a lot of energy, but I also have, in my own experience of going to protests and speaking to people around me and stuff, a lot of people kind of leave feeling like, what was that for? we didn't even get anything done. Like, I just feel like I just screamed myself hoarse and now I'm tired and defeated. And I want to encourage everyone to just dive deeper into, you know, you do this work, you go, you, you show up to, if you're showing up tomorrow, it's because you, it's supposed to be because you love your community. And so make sure you do that every day. Thanks for, for that. I think that's a good reminder as well. Um, Sage. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with climate educator, activist, and writer Sage Lanier. If you'd like to join our conversation, please do reach out. Give us a call at 
256-2001, extension 9. And I'm going to shift now, Sage, back to your article. We've talked about uh, the college course you created, your college experiences. You also spend a good part of that article in uh, The Progressive talking about K through 12 public education and your vision for that. Uh, what changes are you calling for in schools? I think, yeah, we oh, lost your audio. Okay, there yeah. you are. Yep. Okay, hi. I am advocating for institutionalized environmental education. I think the fact that we are still raising people who, it is possible for this system to raise people who have absolutely no idea what's going on on their planet, where their food comes from, what role they play in this global economy of consumption and resource extraction or um, in the social systems and systems of oppression that are unfortunately inherent to the system. I don't think that that's acceptable anymore. It hasn't been for a long time, but I just think or I should say, I think that we would have a much more empathetic workforce and a, a much deep, a different set of priorities with an institutionalized environmental education requirement for every young person around the world. We wouldn't, if we were raising people with, you know, empathy and a good understanding of the limitations of the earth and what it can sustainably offer us and of and to see the inherent value of nature and whatnot we wouldn't have people who are interested in doing extracting and interested in um, pursuing a profit motive above all else so i think that this is you know foundationally education is the root problem lack of education is the root problem so I can talk if you're interested about the different interventions that we're looking at with that the nonprofit. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple different ways to go about this. Obviously, I am very pro empowering young people on this. And if I can, setting up, you know, more youth led environmental programs, education programs is something that's really important to me. That is like really high effort though. It like takes a lot to, to help people get to that point, train them up on teaching and whatnot. The other th avenues that are available to us is one, working with educators who have reached out. A lot of educators have reached out and they're interested in working with us on developing solutions oriented curriculums or environmental curriculums for the first time. So that's a really exciting opportunity. The third option is helping students start advocacy campaigns to their educators, whether they're in high schools or colleges or even the K through eight level and helping them uh, fight for the information that they need in order to, that we need in order to survive and adapt in a climate changed world. You're just hitting on this just now, but I want to talk about how this happens. Um, it sounds wonderful, you know, more uh, awareness of biodiversity, more gardening going on in K through 12 schools. You describe your vision of schools as being biodiversity havens, which I think is, is a beautiful way to think about it. But as a parent of a child in a public elementary school right now, I can say that schools are heading in the opposite direction right now. Less time outdoors, more time interacting with screens, curricula that don't need to be on computers, being moved to computers. Um, how do we convince the powers that be that the youth need something different? Your voice is a powerful one in saying, yeah, if you just listen to us, uh, we can tell you what we need, but there seems to be sort of uh, uh, people missing each other, at least the, the, the powers that be not listening to young people, if that's what you're describing is in fact what young people need. Any thoughts on how to shift the direction of public education? Mm, there's so many challenges there. Um, I think the real... Oh, gosh, it sounds really, it's, it's, I really hate to say it, but I feel like the only way is to encourage children, youth 
to know their power and honestly strike more often. Children don't have a lot of rights in the United States. They are honestly the most unprotected class of people in that they are, I think, legally considered to be property and they really don't have a lot of agency. But what they can do is not cooperate. And whether it's, you know, gun violence or not, you know, being taught algebra while it, it also sounds like, you know, the world is burning and they're like, I feel like I should be taught climate change. That seems a little more important. Regardless, I think children have, I don't know if like teenagers want to be called children actually, but I guess minors, youth, have so much more power than they realize and that they are the next generation. And if the powers that be want them to sit down and cooperate, then uh, they definitely have some bargaining power there. Not showing up, you're saying, or, or not participating, the, the using the I prefer not to. Um, yeah, line. or even yes. just, you know, protesting, that kind of thing. But yeah, I think when you're young and you're in that system, having been in it so recently, it feels very, you do feel very disempowered being just, you know, tr- you know, just trudging from like one class to a next one institution to a next and just feeling like you've got no agency and now being a little older and realizing oh my god there's so much that we could have done and i wish or i hope to be able to help people advocate for themselves young people advocate for themselves yeah and another element to this conversation that i'd like to bring in here is the conversation about youth mental health and what is called often a youth mental health crisis because when one doesn't feel empowered, obviously that can be one contributing factor to not feeling well or feeling a sense of agency. Um, I know I'm not asking you to be a spokesperson here about the issue, but just talk from your own experience and, and those are your peers about the connections you see between education ecological crisis and youth mental health. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, for, you know, funnily enough, I had this TikTok go viral when I was, where I was talking about how I think I, I think I was saying like, I, at this point, I think that environmental education is so depressing on purpose in order to make people not care. And it was just me, like, it was just a little rant of mine, honestly. And it went viral. Um, it's got almost 800,000 views and the comments are flooded with people saying, that environmental education was like crippling, or I shouldn't say that word, I apologize, um, was absolutely horrendous for their mental health. And yeah, people saying that they either dropped out or switched majors or um, whatever, that they took AP environmental science and just never wanted to hear anyone talk about it again. And a lot of people saying that they had to go to therapy or whatever because of the environmental education they received. I think, honestly, having this program that I was I was teaching at Berkeley, being able to do, being able to teach every week and say that I was a part of this program, Solutions for a Sustainable Just Future is the full name at Berkeley. I feel like that was almost a shield against all of the doomism. And I, I was sitting in the doomism classes and I was looking at my peers and I could feel them like kind of curling in on themselves and I could feel the the energy and I could I could have the conversations afterwards and it just made me so angry but I felt like I personally wasn't affected because of how ultra focused my mind was on solutions and I would get mad at my at my professors and I would argue with them and I would try to talk to my my classmates or my friends and be like, I know, I fully understand why you feel that way, but this is like, this is just why I don't feel that way is because I spend so many hours of my week so deeply entrenched in the other side. Um, when you say the other thing, side, what what do you mean exactly? The solution side. Uh huh. The, the action side. Because um, is yeah, is it was you know I was built, I was writing the course, but in the in the midst of writing it, I was I mean I was teaching as I wrote it and. I was also just get trying to make it as locally oriented as possible. So I was look, I was finding all these examples, initiatives, things that were going on in the community to plug in with. And so naturally, I was just a very plugged in person. I was, you know, always at volunteer events or, you know, protests, whatever it was. I was just really, really 
in there. I was trying to walk the walk. And I think that was just, I just, it really felt like a shield. I did not feel the doom and gloom that everyone else felt. I felt very hopeful. I still do. Um, I feel like progress is being made <laughs> every day. And I'm just convinced that the, the, the better world is possible. And that as long as, if I just keep pushing that and getting more people involved, then we'll get there. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with climate educator, activist, and writer Sage Lanier. There's still time to reach out and ask questions about climate education or give us your perspectives, ecological education. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So, Sage, you're kind of saying if if ecological or environmental education goes wrong, it can be actually very disempowering. It's almost worth, it's almost better to not do it at all, you're saying, if it's done only in this mode of here are all these problems that need to be solved. But on the flip side, you're saying um, if there's a solutions-oriented approach, it can actually be so empowering that it can push you through those those mental health challenges and and make you feel empowered in a way that wouldn't have been possible without it. So it seems like you're describing really uh, uh, that the that the focus, the way ecological or environmental information is presented, is so very very important. Is that is that accurate? I mean, you're saying it, it can kind of go either way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, um, yeah, I think people need to be shown that that progress is possible. And I mean, I think someone was pointing out like that. Um, what was it? The oil industry spent or like their propaganda tactic with Gen X was like climate change isn't real. And then oh, there was something else with millennials, like a different. Thing to convince them to not get involved and then with gen z it's like oh it's too late and so that's how they're getting people down and preventing people from getting involved and so i think that it's too late narrative or yeah just the there's nothing we can do about it narrative um it's it's not working it's we, we don't have enough people in the environmental movement we have a very small movement and a huge portion of that is because of the doom narrative. There's so many people. I mean, I'm just looking at my comment section and seeing hundreds of people attest to the fact that they were pushed away by the by the of education they received. And that's a really, really important message, I think, to highlight. We do have a caller on the line. Ron, you're on A Public Affair with Sage Lanier. Thanks. A suggestion... Um, whereby in, <clears throat> environmental and climate education can actually improve people's mental health. Um, decades ago, two of my nieces brought tiny twigs home from school for Arbor Day, and I just came from my sister's farm where the red bud is about 15 feet tall now. Um, people argue whether it's a big shrub or a small tree, but it doesn't get very tall, but it has beautiful pink flowers in the spring. And I just got back to another sister's farm where her daughter had brought home uh, a tulip tree, which is officially a yellow poplar, which is very different from the poplar poplar trees we're most familiar with. This one is about 50 feet tall already, uh, where it was planted by the vegetable garden. It has beautiful yellow flowers in the spring, and the leaves are distinctive in that they have four points on each leaf. Maples have five. This yellow poplar has four. So I think teachers all over Wisconsin should get in touch with the Department of Natural Resources, uh, State Tree Nursery at Boscobel. There's another one further north, but I've forgotten its address. And ask if they have any trees left in stock that teachers can buy and pass out to their students. You know, if people... Well, Arbor Day later, for Arbor Day, you're saying, Ron? Yes, yes. If te if if we teach children 
positive ways to interact with the environment. Planting trees also helps with the climate disasters because they take up carbon dioxide out of the air. So there's still a few weeks before Arbor Day, and if, uh, you know, they may only have a third of the species available that they regularly sell, but if you just, you know, have to plant a, a redbud twig this year, order early next fall and get the species you really want to plant. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. It reinforces uh, the value of positive framing of the human relationship with the rest of the natural world that we have something to contribute, right, Sage? So often the way environmental messages are framed is that we are the problem, human beings. I'm sure you, you heard that from, from your fellow students as well. Well, I just go to these classes and I just feel like, well, we're, we're causing all these problems. But uh, Ron giving us an example of how humans can be co-creators uh, or restorers of nature. Um, tell us about other examples of that kind of activity that you found is empowering for you and, and other students or that you're working on with your nonprofit, Sage. Or feel free to comment on tree planting as well. Can you hear me, Sage? Sorry, I might have... I heard tree planting. Oh, yeah. I might have missed that. I asked... Uh, I was talking about the power of Ron's example is really the power of reframing people as a positive force with nature rather mm -hmm. than as a problem, right? So mm -hmm. I was asking if you have encountered other examples of people being positive restorers or co-creators with nature in your own coursework or in your own experiences or what you've uh what you're engaged in in your nonprofit sustainable and just solutions oh yeah i mean i think anybody who's involved with regenerative agriculture forestry or anything is a hero to me and i've always almost wished i could dedicate myself to that side of things but i think for me, I've decided the most important thing I can do is to invest in um, education to get more people on that side of things. But yeah, uh, regenerative agriculture, or even at you know another organization coming out of Cal, it was phenomenal. Herbicide Free Cal or Herbicide Free Campus. I think they've just recently rebranded another Rewild Your Campus. Um, a couple of my friends started it, Mackenzie and Bridget, and they basically realized that our groundskeepers were having to spray pesticides on all of our, gar all of our um, what are they called, lawns and whatnot. And, you know, it's bad for the groundskeeper's health. It's bad for our health. And it's obviously ecologically a bit of a nightmare. So they started basically hosting volunteer days to help our to uh, take care of a lot of the weeding so that our groundskeepers wouldn't have to because they didn't have the time, which is why they had used pesticides. And now they're at like, I don't know, definitely more than 20 campuses uh, fighting against pesticides. So they, they do volunteer uh, work days and then they'll, uh, they'll also be advocating for policy change at the university level. I just think that's an amazing example of community power actually having a real impact. I think it's definitely more than 20 campuses. I feel like maybe even double that. I haven't looked lately. It is another great example of what you're talking about, ways that students can get engaged with uh, community initiatives to change the world around them. Um, let's talk a little bit more about what happens mental health-wise when students get involved in something like that. You were sharing your own experiences and how you feel so hopeful because you were always engaged as you were teaching this course, what do you think uh, flips the switch for people? Is it just feeling like you're doing something? Is it being outdoors? Is it doing with other people? Is it some combination of all three of those or more? Sorry, I think my Wi-Fi might be having some trouble. Could you repeat that one more time? Sure. I, um, I want to follow up on the mental health conversation we've been having, and you were sharing your own experience of how being engaged in community projects was so important for you mental health-wise, what keeps you going and gives you hope. 
Um, what else is it that helps students' mental health with these kinds of community initiatives? Is it the being with other people? Is it being outdoors or, or other things that you think is so valuable to share to help ecological education address this much larger crisis that so many people are talking about with young people's mental health? Okay, I heard most of that. Um, I think I get the gist of what you're asking. So, yeah, I think that's a huge portion of it, too. And that's also one thing that I would like to delve in with sustainable and just future is at, is setting up, you know, as we move into new campuses and as we're working with new educators and whatnot, other types of things, not just education, there are studies that show that children who spend time in green spaces and in particular gardening have lower stress levels, better sleep. Um, less tension at home, and then obviously like eat, eating the fruit of that labor and being able to have healthy, nutritious foods is good for their health in so many other ways. And I think that's a huge, in many communities as well, in many schools that are underfunded, that is also a, an issue of racism and redlining is underfunded schools are typically in urban areas. They don't have green spaces. They wouldn't have they definitely wouldn't have gardens, let alone like trees and grass. So advocating for that sort of change. I mean, if we could see schools turn into kind of biodiversity havens for native species and places where the community and the students can get, you know, free, nutritious food that's been grown in the gardens there, that would, is definitely part of the vision for a better world. It's got so many different components of it. But yeah, I think, and, and that's very empowering as well for young people to be able to take up those skills of gardening, plant identification, ecosystem restoration, urban foraging, and uh, learning as they grow. That's really empowering. That helps shape your worldview. And it's also better for your mental health and so many other things. Is my microphone okay? Yeah, you sound great, Sage. Okay. We can hear awesome. you well, yes. What are some ways listeners can get involved with the efforts of this nonprofit Sustainable and Just Future that you've been describing or solutions-oriented climate education more broadly? Uh, we have In the time we have left, let's talk about uh, your nonprofit and the folks you're collaborating with and, and ways people can get involved in that effort. Yeah, so at Berkeley, we've officially been running for five years, or it would be five years this fall, and now we're legally a nonprofit to work on expanding as of like February 1st, so we're really new. Uh, so we're really new, so two things. One, I'm just now bringing on like a team of volunteers, and two, we don't have any funding. <laughs> we're working on grant researching grants and hopefully getting funded pretty soon. Or yeah, like we're working on starting to apply to grants and whatnot. So if you are interested in getting involved internally on our volunteer team, more than happy to have you. And externally, if you are listening to this and you're either a student or an educator at any institution and you're super excited about what we're talking about here, we have an interest form on our website, sustainableandjustfuture.org, where you can fill out. And we will get back to you soon and talk talk about next steps about how we might be able to help you get solutions-oriented environmental education in your institution. That's great. And then you're also going to be continuing your work uh, with the op-ed project and um, the Yale Climate Change Communication Program. Tell us a little bit more about next steps for you personally, Sage. Oh, so the, the fellowship with the Op-Ed Project in Yale is in its last quarter. We're wrapping up soon. Um, next steps for me, I am definitely looking to do Sustainable and Just Future full-time and um, hoping to continue to, I mean, I'm really enjoying being on social media lately because I don't think there are too, too many environmental people doing social media work and making things accessible in there and it's been great seeing people be really excited about my 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 videos and the concepts i mean no one's really talking about for example cradle to cradle design and what that means 
And so I'm on there and I'm talking about it and people on TikTok are like, wow, how have I never heard of this? And that's like a huge tenet of the better world I want to build. So that's like disappointing, but also encouraging. So I'm excited to be expanding and, and continuing to grow um, my social media type things. I want to do sustainable and just future full time and just continue to be a collaborative resource for this movement. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm looking at for the near future. I want to follow up real briefly in the minute or so we have left to talk about that social media messaging dimension because you, as you say, have tapped into something where you have this knowledge base and uh, about the world that, that you want to help build, but also a knowledge base about uh, specific kinds of communication that are reaching your generation of young people um, if you want to share that, like, what's the secret? What do you think people need to know more about how to reach young people with this knowledge base about solutions-oriented uh, climate and ecological communication and, and messaging? I don't know that there's a secret. Um, I think the education is just not quite there, which is why it's so novel to a lot of people, these kinds of concepts. But I mean, I think I think the only secret is just I'm a passionate person and I'm just trying to show up as myself and say, hey, this is my work. These are things I'm passionate about. And I'm really glad that I've been having a really good reception with that. Well, I wish you all the best with your ongoing work, Sage. I've been talking today with Sage Lanier, founder of Sustainable and Just Future, a youth-led educational nonprofit. She's a climate activist, writer, educator. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Sage. Thank you so much, Douglas. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, and news director, Sholly, and thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat on today's show. Gail Halstead talks with Nick Vander Pay about his book on the campaign to stop mining in the Pinocchi Hills. Yeah.